We're going to continue in our worship now with the reading of the word. And our passage today is Acts 1, 15 through 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mackenzie. All right, good morning. Welcome. I'm Andrew. Uh, I'm also one of the pastors here at Central Bible Church, and uh, once again, just thankful to see every single one of you today on a really beautiful Sunday out there. We're going to be continuing in our, uh, our series on Acts that we started last week. Uh, but before we do that, let's just take a, a few moments to pray here uh, as we prepare our hearts to hear uh, hopefully some good things um, from the Lord. Lord, we are we're thankful that you speak to us through your scriptures. We're thankful that you've given them to us and that we have before us a way um, to understand your heart and to understand what you uh, would have for the church that you came uh, to live and to die for. I pray that as we are studying them today, um, that you would humble our hearts and that you would prepare our hearts and challenge our hearts in whatever ways are necessary in order for us to be conformed more into your image um, as we grow to love you and to love others around us. In your name, Jesus, amen. Right. Like I said, we're continuing in our, our study of Acts. And uh, last week, uh, we asked ourselves uh, our, our big question for the book of Acts, and that is, what do you think the church is? That question is, what do you think the church is? And we also talked about two main themes that run throughout the whole book of Acts, and they, they intertwine together. I kind of use that uh, double helix, the DNA double helix, where they go together as they, they twist through the whole story. Uh, and those two themes uh, are power, specifically the power of the Holy Spirit, and the kingdom of God. 
And, and those are the two uh, main driving forces that I would say as we, as we launch into this, into this new church age. Jesus talked about that. The last 40 days that he had, he did this big review session with all of his disciples and continued to talk about the kingdom of God, which he had done for the previous three years. And, and that was the context for, why, for the disciples as they're living in this Roman, uh, this Roman society and as they're teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I know, especially in Portland, in our very skeptical Portland, and not just Portland, but really our society and our cultural, culture at large, uh, the idea of power and kingdom, uh, people kind of put their antenna up, right? We don't like this idea of power anymore because we've seen so many people abuse the power that they've been given or kingdom, uh, kingdoms abuse their people or abuse resources or situations that they're put in. And so if that's you, if you're coming uh, to church today skeptical or, or questioning the idea of power, that's, that's great. You're in the right spot. That's where we want you to be here because we want you uh, to hopefully, as we go through this series of Acts, really encounter Jesus, the, the Lord of the universe, his heart for his church. And it looks nothing like holding on to power, control, manipulating other people. And so that's what we're doing as we're in Acts here. We're giving up our power, giving up our control, we're giving up our influence, and we're exchanging it for love, for peace, for forgiveness, for graciousness. Not in a fake society or a fake community where we don't speak truth, but we offer truth with those things in mind, with the love, the forgiveness, the peace, instead of the hard-hitting truth because we, we seek control. And so we're going to see that continuing in our passage today. And so many of us, we, we are faced with choices. How many of you have had at least one choice this last week? Raise their hand. Okay, should be everybody. And so we're faced with choices, and oftentimes we're faced with a choice with two good options. The choices with a good option and a bad option, those aren't really hard choices. Those are pretty easy. But sometimes we're faced with two really good choices. Sometimes that choice might be, uh, maybe if you're a college student, it's where do you go to college? Or what degree do I study in college? Or maybe it's a job. Maybe you're unemployed right now, or maybe you are employed, but you're looking for a different job, and you've got a couple, uh, a couple of options. Both are good options, and you're wondering, which choice do I make? Or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you're in a relationship, and you want out of the relationship. Maybe you're uh, looking to get married and you're trying to decide, uh, who, who do I marry? Do I marry this person? Is this the one that God would have for me? And, and so sometimes we, we think through all of these different decisions. And, and it's the same thing with churches. Communities of believers that come together, they are faced with choices as well. Maybe it's the calling of a new pastor. Uh, maybe it's, should we start a big building project? Should we change founding documents? Should we start a new ministry? Should we end the ministry? Churches are faced with those all of the time. And this church particularly, the one that we're all sitting in, has faced all of those within the last eight to ten years, sometimes more than once. And so we're faced with choices all of the time. And in an age of information and individualization, uh, we as a culture are always wanting to know more about our decisions, right? We, we Google, we talk to people, 
We just want to fill ourselves with information so that we, so that we know we aren't going to make the wrong decision. We're told at a very young age, uh, you can do anything you want. You could be anything you want. And I'm not going to talk about the wisdom of sharing that to your kids. That's a whole nother sermon. But what I will tell you is that that is what is told in our culture. You can be whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. And that leaves people immediately with a sense of excitement because options are good. Options are good because we say, okay, we can be in control of our life as, as having options. Nobody else is telling me what I can do. I can be a self-made person. And, and, but sometimes that euphoria, that kind of, it, it fades away. I remember in high school, I had a math teacher. His name was Mr. Fulton. And I loved Mr. Fulton. I always kind of gravitated towards the teachers who uh, were a little bit more rough around the edge. And so if you, uh, if you ever fell asleep, it wouldn't be uncommon if he threw an eraser at you. Uh, if you fell asleep or weren't paying attention, he would come up behind you and take a big textbook and boom, slam it on the ground, or slam it like right on your desk, and and you'd start paying more attention. It was a private school. You could get away with a lot more. But he always used to tell us, you can do anything you want, but probably not be the president of the United States. There's only been 43 of those, and statistically, that's basically impossible. So don't try it. Also, an astronaut, because there aren't that many of those either. But other than that, keep working hard. You can be anything you want. And so he, you know, he, that was kind of his way of joking of, of work hard, um, do what you need to do, um, but there are some limits of what you're able to accomplish. And so the euphoria of that freedom kind of wears down. And often, as a society, we sit back and then the burden sets in. Oh, man, if I can do anything that I want, society tells me I can do anything I want, I better make the right decision. And so what ends up happening is, you know, many of us will, will pray. And we pray again. And then we pray again. And then we talk to somebody we like and, or somebody that's wise and we get their advice. And then we pray again. And then we go for a walk. And then we come back and we take a nap. And then we pray again. And then we just go and live in our parents' basement because we don't want to make the wrong decision that will affect the rest of our life. It's better to live down there than it is to mess up my whole life. And so, or as Christians, we talk about that, that decision is of pushing back our decisions, of saying, we got to just let go and let God. We've heard that one, right? My favorite is, Jesus, take the wheel. You guys like that song, Carrie Underwood? Should I keep singing it? I don't think you want that. But we have this idea of making decisions, and we don't always know what to do with that. We're going to see that today in our passage. And so I'm probably not going to talk much about Judas's guts coming out of him in his field. If you want to do more research on that on your own, you can do that. But we're going to talk about the, the disciples and the decisions that they're having to make. So if you have your Bibles, open it up to Acts chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 15. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. If you open your Bible about three-quarters of the way through, you should be in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then there's Acts. And so we're going to start in verse 15. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons 
was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, uh, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allowed to share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, so that this field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. All right, so we have a simple passage here. We're going to dive into it. But before we do, I want to set a little context for us. So imagine that you, get into the story here, imagine you are a first century uh, Jewish man or woman, and you are, have been living under Roman occupation your entire life. You don't know what it looks like to have that same freedom that I just spoke about. You don't have the you can be anything you want. Really, if your dad or if your dad was a shepherd, you were going to be a shepherd. If your dad was a fisherman, you would be a fisherman. Maybe you're a day laborer. Maybe you uh, make bricks. Maybe you fill in the blank. But it's going to be kind of the same monotonous job, uh, most likely that your that your parents did. And so you spend your days doing this, doing the same thing. You go to work. You eat. You sleep. You socialize and you contribute to the family unit in some capacity, whether that be working and making money, or whether that be living at home and providing through cooking, through cleaning, through watching children. And it's in that context that out of nowhere, a man comes onto the scene. And this man is like no one you have ever met before. This man is compelling. His teaching is compelling. He talks about the kingdom of God. He performs miracles. He casts out demons. And he talks about abstract concepts. And he associates with people that normally people don't associate with. And, and he talks about the kingdom of God, and he says it's like a mustard seed, and he compares it to all these other different uh, interesting symbols. He says it's for the oppressed, for the poor, for the children. And your first thing that you're thinking is, right, he's here to kick out the Romans. This is great. We talked about that a little bit last week. He's going to kick out the Romans. And as he's talking about the kingdom of God, you're thinking, this is great, but how does it work? How does it work? He speaks in parables that don't always make sense to me. And he breaks all, all sorts of those cultural barriers. But then after three years, something happens, and it's something totally unexpected, even though he's been talking about it. Because for this, for this whole time, you've been thinking, this man, Jesus, he's coming to bring the kingdom to kick out the Romans. And then he's arrested. But not only is he just arrested, he's betrayed by Judas, your friend, the person you've been hanging out with, the person you've been having meals with, socializing, walking with, sharing life with. He's in your community group. And he betrays Jesus. And he's put on trial. And he's sentenced to death. But not just that, he dies. He dies a gruesome death. And you're shocked, and all of your friends are shocked. This is not how it was supposed to go. 
You've given up your life to follow this man who is so compelling and so great. And now you find yourself with all of your friends in an upper room, scared out of your mind because your leader just died. But then out of nowhere, he's alive. He's alive. And the angels tell him that. And then he spends his time with you again for another 40 days, rehashing what he had talked about for the last three years. And it's great. But then he leaves again. But this time he says, I will be back, and I'm sending someone else in my place. And so not knowing what to do, you can imagine if you are in this case, not knowing what to do, they retired to a room again with them and 120 of the followers, or about that. And they would pray. And you pray because you don't know what else to do. You pray because you've been given some instructions, but not a lot. And you know that there are a lot of people out there who will kill you just like they killed Jesus. And so you feel totally inadequate for this job to take the gospel to the entire world. And so what do you do? You roll with what you've got. And that's what we're going to see the disciples. And so the first thing, like I already mentioned, is they pray. They prayed. They're familiar with that to a certain degree. And it was a unique time in history because, as you know, Jesus is gone. The Holy Spirit has not yet come. And so they are, are praying in a, we don't know how long it was, a couple of days, a week. Uh, but they're praying in a time where, in a sense, they kind of don't have that mediator. Jesus was that mediator. The Holy Spirit would be that mediator. But even without that, they just pray. They, they kind of, um, they lean in, as the phrase goes. And they would have had every right to say, okay, um, guys, let's just kick back. We don't totally know what we're going to do. So grab a good book, play some cribbage with your friends, maybe do a puzzle. Uh, but be really careful when you go outside um, because you don't want to tip off where we are and you definitely don't want to die. But that's not what we see. We see that they lead together in prayer. And they lead together in prayer the men, the women, and the children. They get together. It's a time of desperation that calls for uh, getting rid of cultural barriers. Men and women praying together. Children being involved with praying. And they prayed constantly. They prayed constantly. And I don't know exactly what they prayed for, but it probably would have been, God, we don't know what we're doing. We want to be faithful. Keep us safe. Send us in the right direction. Something along that. I mean, you can kind of put yourself in their footsteps. And so as a church, I was thinking we could probably pray more right? Every single one of us, we could pray more. As groups, we could pray more. And many of you have come up to me and said, Andrew, we need to pray more as a church. And I always give the same response. And this is a really honest response. I say, you're right. That's totally great. You should grab some of your friends, and you guys should start praying together. And so I think there's, there's this... Um, I don't know if it's a cultural assumption or, or what we're just used to with churches in that it's only the leaders can, can lead in the ways of, of, of worshiping or praying or you know, doing those kind of things that we do uh, in the church. And so my, my encouragement to all of you is if you have a burden for prayer, grab your friends together. Maybe they're not even your friends. They'll become your friends as you pray. And pray together. Pray in small groups. Pray in large groups. Pray in community groups. And pray not only uh, for, our, for our congregation, but for people who need to know the Lord. 
Pray for our leaders, both in our church and, you know, our, and higher in our government. Pray for our community around us. Pray. And that doesn't mean that there won't be times where we come together as a church and we all pray together and where our leaders pray for, uh, help us uh, pray for a certain thing. Maybe we have a big decision that we need to make and we want everybody to come together and pray. But if we're going to be a church that is built on prayer, it starts, it starts with the leaders, but it doesn't just start with the leaders. It starts with all of us committing to it and saying, we're going to take responsibility for praying for this church because we love this church, we care for this church, and we know what's best for it. And, and if we had a bunch of people that were praying, I think we would start to see a lot of the same power that we see in Acts really coming out as we learn to live in God's kingdom. The second thing we see is that the disciples looked at Scripture, uh, or at least what they had for Scripture. And I think that's one of the things that we often forget, is these disciples, or these early Christians, had very, probably very little of what we know as the Bible. You've got to remember this is you know, 35 AD, roughly, right in there. New Testament hadn't been written yet. They didn't have the part of the Bible that many people think is the only part of the Bible that matters, right? The part that we only should look at, the New Testament, the part about Jesus. They didn't have that part. But I, I mean, that's not true. We should look at our whole Bibles, just so we know the Old Testament is very important. They only had certain parts of the Old Testament, and even that, they, had, they, weren't, they weren't trained men. They weren't people who had gone through seminary. They weren't, their men and women hadn't been in school. And so the, the knowledge that they had of the Old Testament was their interaction with the temple, the interaction with the scribes and the priests, and then also the three years of training that they had with Jesus, which admittedly was probably pretty awesome, but it wasn't a full Bible degree. And so they're looking at the scriptures with their best intention with what they have. And so Peter gets up and he, he quotes two Old Testament Bible verses, two passages. It's, one is in Psalm 69, 25, and one is in Psalm 109, 8. And I'm not going to go into, in depth into Peter's uh, BSM skills, Bible study method skills, observation, interpretation, application. Uh, but I think suffice to say uh, is that most scholars would look at what he did and say that that wasn't a great use of Old Testament scripture here. Uh, and so some of us might be like, okay, what's going on here? Peter, who's one of the founding people of the church, isn't, you know, probably didn't study as much as he should have on this passage. But it's important to know that, he, again, he's rolling with what he's got. And this passage was in two passages in Psalm, and both of them are an individual lamenting to God about a circumstance that they're in, an enemy who was oppressing them, trying to defeat them, and they're crying out to God for deliverance. And in one case, the author is even changing it from a plural to a singular to fit for Judas's context. But I think the important thing here to see is that are these early New Testament believers uh, being oppressed? Are, do they have enemies beating down on them? I would say absolutely. And sometimes as we read through Scripture, we do this all the time, we find comforts in the Scripture that may not be specifically directing at something that we are, are, are feeling, you know, like, uh, uh, like we don't often have huge enemies battling down on us with huge armies, but we do feel oppressed and hurt by somebody who's trying to come after us. And we see a lot of comfort in the Psalms. 
And so Peter, he's doing his best. He's rolling with what he's got given his context. And it's easy for us as Christians, as 21st century evangelical American Christians, to to look at that. But we have to remember that they don't have the thousands of books and commentaries and Bibles that we have on our shelves, but also on our phones. Like, we have so much biblical content just right on our phone that we should be able to look at the Bible and get a good use of Scripture as we're studying it for ourselves and applying it. And we should be doing that. And so they were looking at Scripture, and they are faithfully reading their Scripture, doing their best to apply it without the help of the Holy Spirit. Remember that. In a time where they desperately need the comfort of God to push them in the right direction. That seems very faithful to me. And so as we continue with our story, it says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So again, they're talking about replacing Judas. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Uh, and, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots. Uh, for them, and it fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 disciples. So the disciples are choosing a replacement for Judas, and they do it in a pretty peculiar way. Um, and that many would probably, we would question, is this the best way to pick the next founding apostle of the Christian faith? And some might even think this is gambling. Um, but I think as we look a little bit closer at this passage, I think we're going to see that it's, it's not gambling and that they did their best to make a decision given their context. And so J- Peter talks about this need to replace Judas, and we aren't totally sure you know, why they need to replace Judas, but I think a good guess would be that they had, uh, maybe they needed 12 apostles to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a very symbolic number, the number 12. Uh, Or maybe they had 12 apostles, 12 disciples from the beginning with Jesus, and they said, you know what, it's a good number, it's worked so far, let's keep rolling with it. I don't know exactly why they chose 12, but Peter, given his, his context and his study of scripture and prayer, has decided that they need to replace um, Judas. And it's really interesting that this is the first decision, the first major decision of the church. You ever thought about that? We're 2,000 years later. We make decisions all of the time. This is the first decision the church has ever made. This, I guess it's kind of like the calling of a new pastor. The first decision of many, many hundreds and hundreds of thousands or millions to come. And so uh, their first major decision, and they come together and they decide that there's two qualifications to replace Judas. The first qualification uh, is that this person needed to have been with the group, been with Jesus' disciples, from the very beginning, from Jesus' baptism all the way to his ascension. He needed to be present with everybody, have witnessed what Jesus had done, and to have been a faithful follower of Christ. And I think this speaks to maturity. You can, when you're calling a leader to, to a church, 
to uh, the church, especially after the founding church, you want people who are going to be faithfully invested for a long time in what's going on. You don't want them to be new converts who could be uh, easily scared or, or walk away from the faith if they realize that they don't like it. And so they need, they need to be mature, faithful followers. And then secondly, we see that this person needs to have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's important because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important part of Jesus' ministry and the entire doctrine that the Christian faith is built upon. Paul talks about this at length in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying it's all about the resurrection. It's all about the resurrection because Jesus said he was going to be resurrected. And if he didn't rise, he would be a liar. It's all about the resurrection because only God can conquer death. It's all about the resurrection because once and for all, the curse of sin has been taken and God's power is conquering. It's about the resurrection because Jesus promised one day that we would all be resurrected into the kingdom, into the life that Jesus promised. He says his kingdom is at hand and his kingdom is built on the conquering of sin and death. And it's through that resurrection. You and I, we are invited into that life. We're invited into a life of Jesus, a life that began, or that hinges on the resurrection. And even beyond that, so Paul talks about that, but even beyond that, at a more practical level, if your entire faith, if your entire religion is based on the event of somebody self-resurrecting themselves, something that has literally never done before, you better have people who are totally sold out to that. Because in any other circumstance, this would be a fairy tale, right? If somebody had said that they had raised from the dead, if you hadn't witnessed that, or if you didn't have witnesses of it, it would be uh, very, very unique, to say the least. And so they knew that. They knew they needed people who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who were totally 100% sold out on it, and could pass it on to the other disciples, to the people who would come in the many generations, and the faith could be based on, on a witness, not just on somebody saying they had risen. And so with those two qualifications, somebody who had been with Jesus' ministry, somebody who had witnessed the resurrection, the most important part, they had two people. They whittled it down from 120 down to two. So Justice and Matthias, equal qualifications, equal resumes, both went to a good school, both had good job experience, come from good recommendations from their previous employers. They had two choices, and they had to pick one, right? Who do we choose? Who do we choose? And so they did what they, what they could. They rolled with what they had. And they said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. And I believe that's a really honest prayer. That's an honest plea. They say, Lord, we don't totally know what we're doing here, but what we do know is we have two qualified individuals who both love you. Help us make the right choice. That's fair. 
That's fair. And so they roll the dice or whatever, however you cast lots. I'm not too familiar with casting lots. They cast the lots, and, and one is chosen. And they look at that, and they're saying, this is the will of the Lord. And so that sounds like a pretty solid plan, if we're honest with ourselves. At least to me, that sounds like a pretty solid plan. Pray, seek scripture, seek counsel, have a set of guidelines in which how you're going to do that makes sense, like I have a set of criteria, then come to your two decisions, and then at some point you just have to pick one, faithfully trusting that the Lord is walking with you. And so we can, I think we can apply that even in our own life. Maybe we're not picking, you know, the next apostle, but we, like I said at the beginning, have many decisions that we're making. Maybe it's a college you're picking a college. Both have good degrees. Both are, have good reputation. I don't know which one I should do. I've prayed about it. I've talked to my parents about it, my teachers about it. Just pick one. Pick one. Do it in faith, knowing that you're, making, you're trying to make the right decision and that the Lord will work through that. Or maybe it's a job. Maybe right now you are actually sitting in this pew trying to decide between two jobs. Both of them are good jobs. Both of them aren't immoral in any way. Your spouse or your friends or people around you have said you would fit in these two jobs. You've prayed about it. You've sought counsel. You've read scripture. Just pick one. Just roll with what you've got. And if, but if, you've, if you're in a decision like that and you're still struggling, and I, th- and I know people in here are, people are struggling making a decision. If you've prayed about it, if you've sought counsel, if you look through scripture and you still don't know what to do, um, there's actually, I encourage you, there's a book in the back. It's called Just Do Something. Just do something. It's by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor. Go pick it up. Read through it. It's, it's a book saturated in scripture, and it pretty much tells you to do just what the title says. Just do something. And so I think the disciples here, back to our story, this was the first time I think the disciples got it, right? They're kind of hard-headed. And this is the first time I think the disciples have got it where they're in a situation where Jesus is no longer um, kind of sh- guiding their different moves, and, and they realize, okay, the kingdom, it's here, it's not yet, He's, it's very real, we're the ones that are supposed to move the kingdom forward, we've got to do something. Okay, we think this is what we need to do. We need to, to get another leader in place. Okay, we've done it. Good, we're moving forward. And so I'm gonna, I bet that as they're making this decision, they went into this decision knowing that whatever the outcome was, they were going to be okay with that. Because, and I know that for, I don't know that, I'm pretty sure for a couple of reasons, because one, if there was striving, striping and quarreling, I think it would have been recorded in Acts, because we see in different parts in the book of Acts where there was fighting, the author doesn't hide it. The author puts in the fighting and says, man, people disagreed, they didn't know what to do, and this is how they solved the problem. And we don't see that here. And I think we also see that because they knew what was at stake. They had just been commissioned to take the kingdom through the ends of the earth. And if their first decision begins with quarreling, they're in a whole lot of trouble. It's not a good start. And so I think it's a good, I think it's a good opportunity to talk about how, as a church, we make decisions here. Um, because we do make decisions. And I think many of you have asked us, uh, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you choose to start that ministry, to end that ministry, to hire that person, to let that person go, uh, to start a building project, to do this, to do that, to paint the wall a different color? Um, we make a lot of decisions, and, and we do our best 
to find the will of God within the context that we have and the information that we have. And so as an elder team, we come together uh, and we, we look at what, the decision that we're going to make and we pray about it. We earnestly pray about it. We pray about it as individuals. Uh, we pray about it together as a team. Uh, we seek scripture to say, does scripture talk about this decision in any way? Uh, we, we seek counsel both in and out of this church. Many of us have mentors from different churches, different, uh, both in the city and out of the city. We talk to people in our church if it's a particular uh, topic that they might be knowledgeable about. And then, and then we talk about it together. We discuss it together. And then when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, we have to vote. And we go into the vote and we say, the decision that comes out of this vote is our best, hear this, is our best attempt at figuring out the will of God. Are we perfect all the time? No, we aren't. But as elders, we want to do our due diligence to seek the resources, the wisdom, to pray, to, use the whole, to have the Holy Spirit working in and through us, and then we have to make a decision at the end of the day because we just have to do something, if that makes sense. We have a decision in front of us. We can't not make a decision. And so as a church, as leaders, that's what we do. And we want you to know that, that we take those decisions seriously. Um, and we're, we don't want to just um, flippantly make a decision. But we want to pursue the Lord and what he, his his uh, decision would be, or what we think his will would be, just like each, each and every one of you are seeking the will of the Lord when you make decisions. And, you know, sometimes the Lord chooses to speak through dreams and visions. He hasn't done that to me. I think it's possible, and we'll see that in Acts. Um, but when he doesn't speak through dreams and visions, we just need to do our best in faith with the information that we know uh, to make a decision. And as a church, I would love that. I think, we, I think all of us here would love if that was the DNA of our church. A church that's built on giving up control, giving up influence, giving up always having to have things our way, uh, in replacing that with peace and love and forgiveness and humility and generosity as we seek uh, to make these decisions together, whether it be, like I said, um, what color to paint the wall or what song to sing or um, should we have another pastor or not. And so I also understand that sometimes we as church, church makes decisions that you're not 100% stoked about, and that's okay. Um, and I think when living in community, that's going to happen. And I'll tell you a secret. I'm not always stoked with all the decisions that we make. Sometimes I don't agree with them, but what I do know is that I don't always get things the way I want. My decision and my input and my opinion isn't the only opinion that matters in a community that's got hundreds of people. And so we want to be, we want to be like that. And I don't always do it super well. I don't always do it the way I should. Um, but as we seek to do that as a community, as we seek to be kingdom people, it's going to refine our character, right? Because when you don't always get things the way you want it to be, um, you have two choices. You can... Uh, struggle and wrestle with it, and you can and make it a really big deal, um, which, again, sometimes I do. Or we can humbly say, this isn't exactly the way I would want it, um, but this is what the community at large has decided, and we're going to move forward. And so how cool would that be as a church? How cool would it be as leaders and as congregants if we did that? 
It says it's committing to the essentials of what it means to be in God's kingdom and keeping those at the center. It means loving, peacefully, forgiving, gracious, totally committed to prayer in all of our decisions, in all of our way of life, committing to God's scripture, keeping the main thing the main thing. Not arguing over song selection, wall colors, minor non-essential doctrines, length of people's hair, or what they wear. That's the type of kingdom church that I think brings glory to God. The type of kingdom that focuses on Christ and what he's done, the power that comes from his spirit as he says, go preach a kingdom that's about not having control. In fact, it's about the oppressed. It's about the burdened. It's about the children. The kind of kingdom that's under your feet as you walk forward. So let's seek that together. And I think we're going to continue to see that as a church. So this, the first decision, as they were doing things, and as they're in this upper room, as they're about to launch into this great story of literally taking the gospel of Jesus Christ across the, the whole known world, it started right here. It started with faithfully rolling ahead or moving ahead with what they know. You've got to roll with what you know. So let's pray, and let's continue to worship the Lord uh, through song um, and with our hearts tuned um, with a posture of humility uh, and love and graciousness, generosity. Um, as a community, we seek to do something that is extremely rare in the world around us, and that's giving up power, giving up control. Lord, we uh, are continually convicted by what we read in your scriptures. It's hard. It's hard to be the men and women um, who are living not for ourselves, but living for you. Being men and women who aren't always in control of situations, or even oftentimes our own life. I pray that you would give a boldness into this into this church, into this community of believers, just like the boldness that that early church had as they're sitting in that upper room. That we would be a bold church, that we would not be afraid um, to dive into the, the complexities of being a, a kingdom, gospel-centered church. That we would work together to, to build each other up through honest truth, um, but also through that grace and humility. Lord, we love you. Uh, we thank you for putting us here now, in Portland in 2018. We know that wasn't an accident. We know that you have put us here for a purpose and a reason, and I pray that we would be so compelled by your love um, that we would act on that reason, that we would act on um, the knowledge of your, your spirit has given us um, through your gospel, through your resurrection, uh, that you've given us life. Lord, we love you and we trust you, and we know that you're good. In your name, Jesus, amen.